welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Rachel Wada, the illustrator of The Phone Booth in Mr. Hirota's Garden which was a finalist for the Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. Rachel is a freelance illustrator and designer living in Vancouver. In addition to the phone booth in Mr. Hirota's garden, Rachel's work has appeared in publications such as This Magazine, The Globe and Mail, and Bus Magazine. Rachel's visual style is an amalgamation of her cultural influences, and the techniques she uses in her art reflect the melting pot of her cultural heritage. In our conversation, Rachel talks more about how her roots as a Japanese-Chinese woman are reflected in her work, and why she was drawn to the story of the phone booth in Mr. Hirota's garden. Rachel starts the episode by talking a little bit about the book. The book that I illustrated, it's called The Phone Booth in Mr. Hirota's Garden. It was published in 2019. The story is about a little boy named Makio. He lives in a fishing town by the ocean in Japan. And the story kind of follows Makio and a devastating tsunami that actually hits his village. And as a result of the tsunami, he ends up losing his father. And everybody in the village loses somebody after the big wave hit. And it kind of follows Makio and his story about loss, losing his father. But one day he sees his neighbor, Mr. Hirota, building a white telephone booth up on top of a hill. Um, at this point, Makio, he's kind of a shell of himself at this point um, as a result of losing his father. He's just kind of processing the grief and everything that happened to his village. But he witnesses his neighbor, Mr. Hirota, building a white telephone booth. Um, and he notices that he, the neighbor goes inside the booth every single day and he's talking on his, a phone that's inside the booth. And the neighbor is talking to his daughter who he lost in the tsunami. And the phone booth kind of becomes a symbolic gesture for a lot of people in the village to go to the phone booth to connect with their loved ones um, with the belief that the wind will carry their voices to the loved ones who they lost. So Makio ends up visiting the telephone booth himself, and that's the first time he kind of comes to terms and deals with the loss of his father. And through talking on this phone that's not connected to anything actually, just through that gesture and just reaching out to his father kind of makes him feel more at peace with his what happened. And this is actually based on a true story. Uh, the author, Heather Smith, uh, she was actually inspired by an MT NPR podcast that she listened to, uh, talking about this phone booth that actually exists in uh, Otsuchi, Japan. Uh, it's a small seaside town, much like the one in the book. And it was one of the many cities that was hit by the Tohoku tsunami and earthquake in 2011. So um, the story that the author, uh, Heather Smith, was inspired by was a man named Itaru Sasaki. He actually built the phone booth after he lost his cousin a year before the tsunami. And it was also a symbolic gesture for him to kind of reconnect with his cousin. But after the earthquake and the tsunami hit, um, a lot of people from around the country and in his village ended up visiting the phone booth to also reconnect with their loved ones. 
So Heather, she was really inspired by how such a simple gesture can affect so many people in such a touching way and how a story that is filled with a lot of devastation and loss and grief can also have beautiful aspects to it as well and sort of like a poetic nature. So she wanted to uh, bring the story to a younger audience and to kind of show how grief can be told in a story, but also in sort of a beautiful and heartwarming way. Yeah. What drew you to this story? Uh, what drew me to the story was, um, first of all, I'm Japanese. Uh, my mother's Japanese. And I just remember watching the news of the earthquake happening. And when I heard about the story and how it has connections to the tsunami and earthquake that happened in 2011, it really pulled at my heartstrings because it just brought me back to the time where I was in Vancouver and I have relatives in Japan. And I just remember that sort of uncertainty and fear of not knowing if my relatives will be okay. And also being Japanese myself, it's always something that I take pride in to be able to tell stories about my culture, but to a Western audience. So through my own personal work, I do really enjoy drawing inspiration from my Japanese culture both in my artistic style and in the types of projects that I like to take on as well. So when I got the email from Teresa, who's the art director for Orca, who published the book, I was so, I felt kind of a connection to it, like almost as if it was meant to be in a way. So yeah, yeah that was a very good feeling. Yeah. How did you find, um, as you started working on the illustrations, where did you draw inspiration from and what kind of research did you do to kind of put those images together? Yeah, uh, my initial research actually began with um, a lot of podcasts and documentaries, both about the phone booth itself and about the Tohoku tsunami and earthquake. So I did a lot of research from podcasts, documentaries, watching a lot of YouTube videos. And then from there, I wanted to see how the illustrative style can kind of reflect the culturally specific story. So I was looking at a lot of like just traditional Japanese art, um, like ukiyo-e woodblock printing and sumie, like calligraphy as well. And um, I wanted to kind of translate those styles, but in a more modern sort of way so that um, it is recognizable that it is a culturally specific story, but also universal and in the way that um, the story about loss and grief is a universal feeling. So we didn't wanna take away from that as well. So it was a lot of uh, balancing between um, artistic styles um, and being making sure that we can communicate the story to a wider audience. Yeah, I was curious about that part of the the loss and how to make room in the story for those, those kind of heavy subjects that, um, are important to talk about with a younger audience, but it needs to be done with such care at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I, I wondered how you navigated that as you were doing the illustrations. Yeah, this is a topic that um, me and Teresa, who's the art director, we had a lot of back and forth conversations about how to approach this topic in particular. And we reached the conclusion that um, because the story is about Makio, he's a young boy of about five or six years old. 
we wanted to make sure that the illustrations kind of reflected his perspective on the situation. So for example, in the spread where the big wave actually hit his town, we wanted to make sure that we don't show too many aspects of the actual devastation that takes place to like the buildings and the village and more about the overall feeling that a child would have in a situation where things are kind of out of his control and a natural disaster such as a tsunami can be very overwhelming for a child. So it was more focusing on his feelings as opposed to the actual things that took place. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting um, because there was, it seemed like you were really just how you were talking about, you know, playing um, with the images from his perspective. It seemed like a lot of things were, you could really see his point of view in the illustrations. Like there was the one where it was just kind of people's feet, um, which I thought is something very childlike where they often, you know, have to look way up to see, to see someone. So were you thinking of those kinds of perspectives as you were doing the illustrations? Yeah, I'm glad you noticed that spread in particular, because that's one little touch that I wanted to add to the illustrations for that spread. Um, On top of that, I just tried to go back to my own memories of when I was a kid of visiting, let's say, my school as a kid and versus when I'm an adult, just seeing how different things can look in a different perspective and a different time and place. Everything just felt so much bigger and there's so many unknowns. So I wanted to try to reflect that in the illustrations as well. Yeah. Something um, I'm, I'm always curious of, too, is just like how um, how people leave space for things in illustrations, like uh, like with adult books, you know, there's no space for for anything in yeah. adult books. But it seems like there's more um, more room for kids to kind of play with things. And um, how do you think about that when you're doing the illustrations? Yeah, I try to keep in mind at the end of the day, although this would be a children's book and keeping in mind that um, the audience for the book would be for children. Um, I wanted to keep the images sort of simple enough so that kids could easily understand that the telephone booth is a telephone booth and inside the booth there's a telephone. I just wanted to make things a little more simplified for the audience. And also um, going back to like the cultural aspect of things, I we both figured that um, We can add elements to that in the illustration through texture and colors, as opposed to culturally specific things in the illustrations themselves. But we wanted to add touches of that through little moments like when we show the village, we wanted to make the roofs of the uh, buildings look more like it's from Japan as opposed to the roofs you would see back home here uh, in Canada. And um, in terms of just like Makio's house inside of his house, some things will look slightly different. For example, the tables are a lot lower, the windows are a lot wider. Just little things like that to balance culturally specific imagery as well as universal imagery. Yeah. I also liked the one spread where there were no words at all. Um, and I wondered how that image in particular came about. Yeah, that was actually um, Teresa's idea. She wanted a wordless spread. Um, where it featured Makio looking down into the water and kind of remembering the stories of um, him and his dad and the time that they had together. One thing about this spread in particular is the color palette as well. This spread in particular has very vibrant colors compared to all the other spreads. And color was one thing that we wanted to focus on in the story in the sense that um, in this spread, it's 
one of the more emotionally charged parts of the spread. And it's one of the first moments where Makio is really facing and dealing with his grief with the loss of his dad. So we wanted to add a lot of bold colors, uh, more texture, and um, focus more on the visual aspects of building that emotional feeling that Makio may be having and thinking in that moment. Um, and as opposed to the previous pages leaving up, up to that spread, there's more muted colors, more blues, more pastel pinks, more greens. But in that spread in particular, there's a lot of bright pinks, darker greens, and more contrast in color. So we wanted to kind of create that visual dynamic feeling through that spread. Yeah, it, it's really kind of that wow moment when you uh, open that spread. It, it's really beautiful. Thank you. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more. You've talked about the color and texture in the book, which is so, it's so beautiful and like visually stunning. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about, about the color and texture and also the medium you use to create the illustrations. Sure. Um, going back to the color palette, um, one thing that Teresa wanted to make sure was that chronologically, it followed a timeline where the story would kind of begin around um, uh, springtime and then it would eventually lead to summer. So it would take place between spring and end of summer. So we wanted the beginning spreads to kind of have a more lighter color to signify spring. And throughout the story, we add more warm colors to signify the transition between spring and summer. And in the middle of the book where the tsunami actually hits the town and the couple pages following that, um, showing more of what happened to the village and Makio's reaction afterwards, those spreads tend to have a lot of dark colors to reflect more of what is happening um, emotionally for Makio as well. So color was a really important part of the creative process in just communicating not only the time and place where everything is happening, but also the emotional feeling of each spread as well. And in terms of um, my creative process, for this book in particular, I was really inspired by ukiyo-e woodblock printing so it's a traditional uh, method of printing where colors are basically layered on top of each other one by one to create the final image. It's a very labor intensive process, but um, I wanted to kind of translate that, but in a more modern sense. So what I decided to do was I drew most things by hand. So on a piece of paper with uh, brush and ink work, pencils and sometimes inks and watercolors. I would paint all the images separately first and I would scan them into the computer and um, kind of compile the image that way. And in the computer, that's when we would add all the colors and everything like that. For both um, aesthetic reason and a practical reason as well, I find it is a lot easier to make revisions after once it's on the computer. It's kind of hard to paint the full image and get revisions and kind of tweak it afterwards. So it's kind of saving me time as well. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but that's generally how I tend to work as well with my own personal uh, practice. And I was glad that I was able to translate that into this book as well. Earlier on, you uh, you mentioned how your identity as a Japanese uh, woman informs your artistic pro process and practice. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, that's a topic that I often think about. And um it goes back to my childhood. I was born in Japan. I was raised there for a couple of years and I spent a lot of time moving between Japan and Canada. So I did a lot of back and forth. 
And I think around that time when I was um, in elementary school, I was moving around a lot and mm -hmm. learning different languages and being in a new environment. I think it kind of forced me to be a very visual learner and thinker early on. Just living in a different country away from your home, it, for me, it kind of forced me to think, what does it mean to be Japanese? What does that look like? And how does that kind of bleed into my artistic practice? So um, this was a topic I kind of carried on to art school when I uh, went to university in Emily Carr of Art and Design. Um, one of my illustration classes was about just finding your artistic voice and finding out what is the one thing you want to communicate through your art. So I really decided to focus on what does it mean to be from one country living in another country and just being Japanese in Canada, just all those different mix of emotions and how do we visually communicate that. So I started looking at a lot of traditional Japanese art through that research. So I looked at a lot of um, ukiyo-e woodblock prints, uh, traditional fabrics. Um, I love like kimono prints and fabrics like that. And um, even origami paper, chiyogami. Um, a lot of different influences like that to make me think, okay, what does Japanese art look like? And what does that mean to a Western audience? So I wanted to kind of add those influences into my own art, but kind of put a, my own spin on it. And um, that whole process is kind of where it led me to my own artistic style today. And um, when I received the project for the phone booth in Mr. Hirota's garden, I just thought, this is so in line with what I want to do with my art and my practice that, yeah, I was very grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. What's it like when those opportunities come up where, where people really kind of approach you because they see that you have such a unique artistic voice and then give you these great opportunities to explore the, your voice through those projects? Um, it feels great to know that, um, in the publishing industry, it feels like they're really trying to focus on creating stories for all audiences and having creators and authors tied to those stories be, for example, for a story that is Japanese, they really try to find a Japanese illustrator to really honor the stories. So I really feel good about that. And um, I do enjoy being able to showcase my culture to a wider audience. I take a sense of pride in doing that. So I do, every time I receive a project in this nature, it really fills my heart. So it's something I would love to keep doing going forward as well. Thanks so much to Rachel for being on the podcast. And thanks as always to you, our lovely listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. If you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Ria Tregabov, whose novel Rue des Rosiers was a finalist for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.